Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. We've come today to bless the holy name of the Lord. We are commanded in scripture to do that very thing. Psalms 103.1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And in that famous verse, the psalmist is reminding himself of something. Really, I think of it as giving himself a mini pep rally. Uh, many of us who have been sheltering in place for the better part of a month now have come to understand and be more sympathetic to someone talking to himself. It's okay to talk to yourself, I think, so long as uh, you tell yourself the truth, as you uh, remind yourselves of the right kind of things. The psalmist told his soul to bless the Lord. Now, what then does it mean to bless the Lord? We relate more, I think, to being recipients of God's blessings. We know we should thank God for his blessings, both uh, of common everyday grace and the special grace of our salvation. We know that when we eat a meal, we should bless it and thank the Lord for it. But how can we in reality bless God? How can we fulfill that commandment to bless the Lord? When I was growing up in the rural South, it was not uncommon for church members when the pastor said something that especially moved or touched them to, to cry out spontaneously, bless God. It's a sort of an elongated amen, I guess. As I've pondered this week the phrase, bless the Lord, I believe those precious folks understood what it meant to bless God. See, when God blesses his children, the implication is that we become better and more fit or improved in some way, spiritually or physically or even financially. We will say, well, the Lord blessed me with a job or the Lord blessed me with better health. However, God is different than us, isn't he? He is independent and self-sufficient and perfect already in every way. We have nothing to offer God that would improve him or make him better off. He is lacking in nothing, even if we could offer him something. So to bless God is simply to praise him, to thank him for who he is and to worship him. So this morning, I want to offer six reasons to bless God this Easter Sunday morning. Our text is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And here the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians who were under great stress. They were out of sorts in many ways. Life had radically and, and quickly changed for them. And uh, he calls them in verse 1, aliens and strangers and those who've been scattered abroad. Well, the people that Peter was writing to initially were scattered by persecution against the church. We have found ourselves scattered by disease. And in verse two, he calls them the elect, the chosen of God. And that tells us that God has not lost control of this situation, neither had he lost control of their situation. All of this is working out according to his divine decrees. In fact, in verse two, he mentions the work of all three members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit working for our good and his glory. Now, having established that theological truth, he, he gives his readers reasons to bless God. Let's read our text. First Peter one, verse three through five. 
Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his word. Now, some passages in the scripture, we must admit, are more difficult than others to understand. On Wednesday evenings, we studied for about two years through the book of Hebrews, and I would place the book of Hebrews in the category of difficult to understand. It sometimes gives us a theological migraine just to contemplate some of the great theological truths found in it. Um, in fact, Peter, who wrote our text today in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, affirmed the apostle Paul's teachings as from God, and yet he admitted some of the things that Paul says are difficult to understand. And if you've read the book of Romans lately, you identify with Peter. Well, most of Peter's writings are, are not like that. They're not in that category of difficult to understand. Peter is a fisherman, blue collar guy, a simple guy, and, and God used that personality just as he did with Paul and all the writers of scripture to communicate his divine truth. So the point being, I don't think anyone's going to turn off the television today or your computer monitor with a theological migraine. When I was playing baseball years ago, when a batter would hit a lazy high fly ball that was an easy out, someone in the stands was bound to say, can of corn. And I've laughed over the years. What in the world did they mean by that? Well, I looked it up one day and it seems the origin of that phrase years ago when people had corner stores that they did their shopping in. The stores were very small and so they stacked the canned vegetables as high as they could to make the most of the space. And so a lady would come in with her weekly order and the attendant would uh, take a broomstick and he'd reach on the high shelf and knock off a can of corn and catch it in his work apron. And it was the easiest thing in the world to catch a can of corn. Well, if I could say it this way, this passage before us is a theological can of corn. All we have to do is open our theological apron and the Lord will drop these truths in our lap. And I hope we'll have a wonderful time talking about the goodness of the Lord today. So the first reason that we have this Easter Sunday morning to bless the Lord, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, is His great mercy. Verse 3 says, according to His great mercy. Now mercy and grace are two sides of the same theological coin. Now, technically, mercy is God's withholding His wrath when we justly deserve it, and we do every time we sin. And grace is His positively giving us something good, in this case, salvation. But there are really two ways of getting at the same truth, and I don't think we need to split hairs between the two. God's mercy is described here by Peter as being abundant. Of course, the word abundant means plentiful, more than enough. And do you know why it is essential for God's people that his mercy is abundant? Because our sin is certainly plentiful, isn't it? Peter says that God provides this mercy in abundance according to his mercy. Now the phrase according to means commiserate with his nature and ability. We uh, Texans like to boast, don't we, about the size of everything in Texas. So you, you go to a local restaurant 
and you order an item, they may say, do you want small, medium, large, or Texas-sized? And so when we talk about God's mercy, it is Texas-sized mercy. Really, it's more than that, isn't it? It's God-sized mercy. It's commiserate with his ability to grant it, which of course is infinite. Uh, notice he says his mercy is granted to us according to his ability, not out of his ability. I've read with interest some of the wealthiest men and women in America are being noted these days for their contributions to the efforts to end the coronavirus pandemic. And every day or so you'll read about some billionaire donating a million, 10 million, 20 million dollars, and, and we're certainly grateful for those contributions. But if a billionaire gave you a thousand dollars to meet a pressing need, he would be giving out of his ability. But if he were to give you a hundred million dollars to meet a pressing need, he would be giving according to. And so when Peter says God gives us abundant mercy, he does that out of abundance because he is able to do that because as God, he is infinite in mercy. One of my favorite new hymns, it's a year or two old now, at least since I've heard it, is by a friend of ours, young man who grew up right here in Keller, Matt Boswell, and it's called His Mercy is More. And my favorite line in that song that's repeated over and over is, our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. Bless God for that truth. Now there's a second reason we find here in 1 Peter chapter 1 to bless God, and that is his work of regeneration. He says he has caused us to be born again. Note that this is his work, God's work, not ours. Jesus told Nicodemus in Gospel of John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, remember, was a religious leader, and so when Jesus told him that, he was nonplussed because he was not used to being out of control. He was used to telling other people what to do to be made right with God. And Jesus rocked his world. He knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Just as we are dependent for physical birth on our parents, we are dependent upon God for our spiritual birth. See, our physical birth was not a cooperative effort between ourselves and our parents. Well, neither is regeneration. It's God that grants faith and repentance by opening our spiritual eyes and breathing life into us through regeneration. And left to our own devices, there's not one of us who would have ever chosen God. So to Him be the glory and honor forever and ever for His work of regeneration. Bless God for that truth. There's a third thing this Easter Sunday morning that we should give God praise for and bless His name for, and that is our living hope. He says He's, been, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now that word hope is one of the most abused and overused words in the English language. Over the years, it has come to mean personal preference. If you say, I hope it rains tomorrow, someone else may say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. It's just an expression of our personal preference. Well, that's not at all what Peter meant when he says we've been born again to a living hope. In fact, just the opposite. When Peter wrote those words in the Greek, they meant a confident, eager expectation. It's what the hymn writer meant when he wrote the lyric, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So our hope as believers is a confident, eager expectation. 
Now, why can we have that confident, eager, eager expectation of the future, even in the days of pandemic? Well, at least three reasons. One is because of who God is and who Jesus is, God in the flesh. And because Jesus is God in the flesh, he has an ability to keep promises that none of us do. Now, I suppose the person that most of us admire the most as a manly figure is our, our dad. I hope you had a dad that you could admire. I certainly do. And I can remember growing up, my brother and I had the chore of uh, mowing the grass every week. And so when we would finish mowing the grass, dad would sometimes say, all right, we're going fishing. And sometimes at the beginning of the week, he'd say, okay, when we get all the work done around the house, then we'll go fishing on Saturday. And my dad is a man of his word. And so we expected all week, we did our chores, we expected to go fishing. But you know what sometimes would happen? We'd wake up Saturday morning and there'd be a thunderstorm and there'd be lightning everywhere and it would be raining and we knew we weren't going to be able to go fishing. Not because my dad is dishonest, but because he's a man and he lacks the ability to control the weather. And so in that sense, God is different than us. There's nothing that could prevent him from keeping his promises. And so when the Lord says, I'm going to bring you ultimately to heaven with me, he will keep that promise because of who he is. His history of promise keeping should also give us joy and hope. Scripture says all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. In fact, because we are in Christ, the Bible says we should let our yes be our yes and our no, our no. We should be known for being promise keepers ourselves, but he certainly is. And the third reason that we have this living hope is that there is one important promise that's more important than all the others that he has already fulfilled, and that is his blessed resurrection. Really, that's what we've come to celebrate here today, not just on Easter Sunday, but that's why Christians for 2,000 years have gathered each and every Sunday, because Sunday was the day of the week that Jesus rose up from the dead. So our fourth reason to bless God is our resurrected Savior. See, Peter says we as Christians have a living hope, not a dead one. In Acts chapter 2, after the apostles had been filled with the Holy Spirit, they went out into the streets of Jerusalem and they began to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter, being the primary preacher and spokesman for the twelve, stood up and he was preaching to Jewish people who understood the Old Testament and he made this point. He says, David was our forefather. He's a man that we looked up to, but we could walk down to David's tomb today and look inside and we're going to find what's left of David. But he says, the tomb of Jesus is not like that. It's empty because we serve a living savior. And therefore we have a living hope and not a dead hope. You ever thought about why we Christians make us such a big deal about the resurrection, why Easter is so important to us. Or is it? Is the doctrine of the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus an essential doctrine? Well, I believe it is, and I think Paul certainly believed it was when he wrote 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 17, Paul said it in a way I don't think could be any clearer. He says, if Christ not be raised, your faith is in vain. You are yet in your sins. Now, I would call that a central truth. He's saying if the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus never took place, 
all of us are going to hell because of what the resurrection proves. The resurrection proves a number of things. Number one, that Jesus is victorious over death. We hearken back to Genesis chapter three, when God the Father predicted in cursing the serpent that one day the seed of woman would crush his head. That is, he would ultimately defeat the final enemy, death. That's why Paul could taunt death and say, where's your victory? Where is your sting? It has been removed by the reality of Christ's resurrection. What the resurrection also shows is that God the Father accepts the sacrifice of his son. The first two people to offer sacrifices recorded in the Old Testament were the brothers Cain and Abel. One of the sacrifices God accepted and one of the sacrifices he rejected by the virtue of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, it is proof positive that God the Father accepts the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of God the Son. And then there's a third reason of what the resurrection proved, and that is that our blessed hope of a resurrection is real. This past week I had a new experience. I conducted a funeral service by computer, by an application called Facebook Live. And likely if this pandemic continues much longer, it will not be the last. It's a new way of doing things. But even though we couldn't talk to a congregation face to face, I was able to share with those dear believers that we have a blessed hope of seeing this loved one again one day. Not because of anything within us, but because of what Christ has accomplished through his resurrection. We have this blessed hope because we as believers are united with Christ. We share in this resurrection. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 through 23, Paul writes, for since by man came death, that is our first father, Adam, through him sin entered the world and through sin death. By man came also the resurrection of the dead. That of course speaks of the Lord Jesus. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. For every man in his order, Christ, the first fruits afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. He's saying that when Christ comes again, we are going to receive those resurrected bodies like his. Bodies that are fit for heaven and eternity. Bodies that don't wear out. Bodies that don't grow sick and bodies that never die. As the song says, in a land where we'll never grow old. Bless God. Now, speaking of heaven, and I like to speak of heaven. Speaking of heaven, that, that's another reason to bless God the Father. Peter describes heaven here as our eternal inheritance. Look at verse 4. He says that uh, we have been born again through the power of God and his resurrection power to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now you know what an inheritance is. An inheritance is a benefit that accrues to you through the work of another by virtue of your relationship to that person. And that really is a very excellent definition of our salvation which Paul says is by grace. So let me say it again. Think of your salvation in the place of the word inheritance. An inheritance is a benefit that accrues to you through the work of another 
by virtue of your relationship to that person. See, the work of Christ is his perfect, sinless life, his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross, and his miraculous, literal bodily resurrection. If you remove any one of those elements, you don't have the gospel any longer. And what Peter is saying here is that that heavenly inheritance is superior to any inheritance here on earth. If you've ever received a bequest, maybe by surprise, the one you were expecting to get, it's, it's always a blessing to receive some property or some financial benefits. But none of those things, no matter how great and in what amount, could come close to our heavenly inheritance. Because he describes our heavenly inheritance with three words that we can't use rightfully and truthfully to describe anything here on earth. First of all, he says our heavenly inheritance is imperishable. That is, it has no expiration date. There's never going to come a time where it's no longer valid or valuable. Nothing on earth can we say that. A car wears out. A land sometimes is transferred from one person to another and loses its value. Money comes and goes. And so it's different, isn't it, to say that our heavenly inheritance is imperishable. And then he says it's undefiled. That is, there's no hint of impurity in it. It wasn't obtained, in other words, by immoral means. It is pure and pristine and good and right. And then he says, ultimately, this heavenly inheritance will not fade away. That is, it will never depreciate in value. Some of us these past few weeks have seen our earthly investments sort of fade away. They depreciated in, in value. By the way, we can bless God for that too. Because it has taught us, I think, a great lesson. And that is there's no such thing as a safe investment here on earth because there's so many factors we have no control over. But bless God, we don't have to preserve our heavenly investment. Many of us spend way too much time trying to manage and control and protect and preserve our earthly investments. We don't have to worry about our heavenly investments because it's not up to us to preserve us. One of the great and blessed truths of the Bible is because it's not up to us to save ourselves, it's not up to us to keep ourselves saved. We are preserved, verse 5 says, and protected by the power of God. Look at it. Speaking of those who've been born again to this living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 5 says, we are protected by the power of God through a faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Protected by the power of God. When you walk in a lending institution, bank here in the United States, they have a label on the door displayed very prominently that your account is protected by the FDIC up to $250,000 per account holder. And that uh, gives us confidence that we can deposit our money in that bank and we don't have to put it in a mattress or dig a hole somewhere. That pales into comparison to the confidence that Christians have when we are reminded that our heavenly inheritance, that thing we're looking forward to most, spending eternity with the Lord, these resurrected bodies that we look forward to one day, the truth of that reality is protected by the power of God. I've enjoyed teaching our online systematic theology class these past few weeks. And if 
who haven't joined us, I hope you will. It's not too late. You can go back and catch up. All of those classes are listed. But this past week, we studied together what's called the incommunicable attributes of God. That are those characteristics of God that he does not share with anyone. Those things that make God uniquely God. And one of the first things we see in the Bible that makes God uniquely God that he doesn't share with anyone is his omnipotence, which means that he is powerful enough to do all of his will. And so when we think about how powerful is God to keep us saved, to preserve our heavenly inheritance. That's the word that ought to come to mind. He is all powerful. That is, there's nothing more powerful than him. Now I mentioned my father's promises to take my brother and I fishing. It was not because of his dishonesty that we didn't go. It was because of his inability to keep the promise because he's not omnipotent. But God is omnipotent. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote Romans chapter 8. He, he sort of is just thinking out loud and he is just coming up with things that people think are powerful or could potentially be more powerful than God that could potentially separate us from God. And so he, he says this, Romans 8 verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he begins to list possibilities. Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, and I might add, or COVID-19. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things, all these possibilities, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will able, be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, bless God. And what about you, dear friend? I'm speaking to Christians today. We have reason to bless the name of the Lord. He's so good to us by meeting our needs, food, clothing, shelter. He's so kind to us to send us the special grace of his dear son. The scripture says this blessed hope of the future, this living hope is appropriated by faith. Even though it is all a work of God, it is appropriated by simple believing faith. What about you? As you hear the word of God taught, as you read the scripture yourself, is it real or is it mythology? Has it transformed your life or are you unmoved by it? See, there, there's only two categories of people in the world. We've been hearing a lot about 
different demographics and how this situation is affecting different kinds of people. But look, in, in God's economy, in his reality, he simply says you're either saved or you're lost. You're a believer or you're an unbeliever. You're a child of the kingdom of God's dear son or you're a child of the kingdom of darkness. Which are you? Well, if you want to be saved, you can be. The scripture says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Last Sunday morning, I ended the sermon with sharing the gospel. I want to do that again today. See, the problem is that you're a sinner. That's not my opinion. That's God's opinion. And so the first step of being saved is agreeing with God's assessment of yourself. You are a sinner and you fall short of his glory. You violated his commandments in word and thought and deed. And because you're a sinner, you cannot enjoy fellowship with a holy God. And he knew that there's nothing we could ever do to make up that sin dead. And so he did it for us. At just the right time, he sent his son into the world, born of a virgin, who lived a perfect righteous life for 30 years. And then he fulfilled his mission by going to the cross as our substitute. And he literally died there and he was laid in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he rose again, which showed us that God the Father was perfectly satisfied. His wrath was satisfied. His justice was satisfied with his son's sacrifice. And then whoever then puts their faith and trust in what Christ has done, not in what they have done or will do or any potential they perceive in themselves, none of that. The only way to be saved is to despair of any righteousness you perceive in yourself and come to Jesus on his terms, as I often say here, with empty hands and outturned pockets and prostrate yourself before him and say, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Here's the wonderful good news. Peter described the mercy of God right here in our text today as abundant, plentiful, more than enough. You say, pastor, you don't know my history. I'm a sinner of the likes you can't imagine. I, I, I suspect I can. But even if I can't, it's not too much for the Lord. As Matt Boswell wrote in his song, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. We like to sing the old hymn, grace, grace, marvelous grace, grace that is greater than our sins. If you want to be saved here today, just confess to God you're a sinner, you've been a rebel against him, but you want to come to him on his terms. You don't have anything to bless him with other than the praise of your mouth. He's not lacking in any way. You are lacking in his righteousness. And if you will ask him, he will give the righteousness of Christ to you. He will count Christ's righteousness to your account, and he will count your sin to Christ's account on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you this Easter Sunday morning that we have so many things to bless your name for. We thank you for your abundant mercy. Father, we thank you for the living hope that we have, not a dead hope, but because of the resurrection, our hope is, is real and it's alive and it's an earnest, confident expectation of the future. Father, as we think about and contemplate our future, it's, it's heaven. It's these glorified bodies we read about. And 
It's our eternal reward. Father, we don't have to fear losing it because it's kept until that day by your omnipotent power. And so, Lord, we bless your name. And Father, I bless your name today because you're still saving sinners such as us. You didn't leave us in our sin, but you pursued us. And Father, you sent someone to speak the gospel message in our hearing. And through that, by your spirit, you opened our blind eyes and you breathed spiritual life. And we were born again. So Lord, we thank you and we bless you because your work of regeneration. And Father, we long to bless you even more next Easter because we would pray, Father, that by then, once again, we would be able to be back together, that we could go back to gathering regularly with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But Lord, if that's not the case, we're still going to praise you. Thank you for the ability to do this through technology. Help us never again take for granted our church family. We pray these things in and through the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.